Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast about UK-German friendship, past, present and future. I'm Andreas Michaelis, the German ambassador in London. We are bringing you a special edition of our podcast. As we celebrate 31 years of German unity, we will be speaking to two people who experienced the fall of the Berlin Wall at first hand. We have with us Anne McElvoy, senior editor at The Economist, presenter on BBC Radio and columnist at the London Evening Standard. At the time of the fall of the wall, Anne was reporting out of Germany for The Times. She will tell us later about her experience at the time. I currently have in my hands a copy of The Times from the morning after the wall started to come down. Anne's story is splashed across the front page. The headline reads, The Iron Curtain Torn Open. I'm intrigued to hear from you, Anne, what it was like to be in the midst of the action, reporting history as it happened. Our second guest today is John Kampfner. In addition to writing in The Times and The New European, he has recently published a bestseller, with a somewhat provocative title, Why Germans Do It Better. At the time of the fall of the war, John was reporting for the Telegraph from Germany. The Telegraph from 11th November features an impressive photo above John's story. The photo shows West Germans forming a human chain straddling the Berlin Wall, watched on the ground by East German border guards. Today's edition of the podcast will be moderated by Quentin Peel. Like Anne and John, Quentin is an expert on Germany. He is Associate Fellow with the Europe Programme at Chatham House. Previously, he was Chief Correspondent for the Financial Times in Germany. I should add at this point that this podcast is being pre-recorded before the federal election in Germany so that it can be released on 3rd October, German National Day. Now, without further ado, many thanks Anne, John and Quentin for being part of this. Quentin, the floor is yours. Well, welcome. We have the wonderful opportunity today of taking part in a special edition of this podcast on the anniversary of German unification. And my two colleagues here today, Anne McElvoy and John Kampfner, fellow journalists, I am very jealous of because both of them were in Berlin when the wall came down. I was sitting in Moscow, rather a long way away, in a place where they wanted to do anything but pay attention to Berlin. So what I really want to find out from both of you Uh, is where were you when the wall came down and how did you react? Anne, do you want to start? Very happy to do that. I'm just reflecting as you're talking, Quentin, that of course so many of the events that led up to it and were decisive were made, or at least partly made, in Moscow. So I think you can pride yourself that you, you were in the thick of it, uh, even if you... I was in the right place, but the wrong place. So exactly. You were, you're not among the rubble of the Berlin Wall, but you were definitely, I think, uh, there among the, the people and factors who helped bring it down. So it's very simple. It, in my case, uh, we were all incredibly busy in those weeks because the East German regime was, in a very obliging way, had a good sense of, of the news cycle and was falling day by day to the extent bits were just 
would fall off it and and things would go wrong every day. And uh, we were running around trying to to cover it. And so when this press conference was called, this famous press conference by Gunter Schabowski, the Berlin party chief, uh, we sort of went along expecting some announcement about uh, vaguely about travel liberalization, but everything was always on the never, never around uh, that theme. And uh, then, of course, he found himself under pressure to say something that he was clearly not at all prepared for and asked when a new and more liberal travel regime would apply. He said, well, um, from now, absolutely. And with that, of course, uh, events simply took off that day and led to the fall of the wall that evening. So then I ran down to the wall and I tried to tell the border guards that the wall was open and they wouldn't believe me and sent me away again. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, wondering what happened to John that night. John, what did you, did you realise straight away quite how momentous an announcement it was? I was slightly in the wrong place um, at that time, Quentin, because um, I happened to be in Leipzig. I had gone to Leipzig to continue to monitor developments there, the ongoing church protests around the Nikolai Kirche. And then I heard it on the radio. So I legged it or card it um, back to, to Berlin um, to get to the Brandenburg Gate and to points around. I had to actually go back to the east, which was uh, straightforward enough through Checkpoint Charlie, which was still being absolutely as if nothing had happened whatsoever um, in order to see developments on the east and developing on the Brandenburg Gate. And then seeing, you know, uh, with my pen and pad of paper and, and writing it all, all down and interviewing people in the incredible mayhem of that moment. And uh, at the end, I found myself in Kochstrasse, in what's now the pretty sort of sleazy, tacky part, uh, just on, on the western side um, of Checkpoint Charlie. And these are the days before mobile phones. And um, it was incredibly difficult to get lines. That night was absolute disaster. And I uh, ended up in a uh, kebab shop just on the western side. And um, in those days, you, what you would do, you would phone through to these wonderful, usually middle-aged ladies called the copy takers. Um, and I just extemporized um, my uh, rather over excitable account of everything I had heard and seen. And this rather unflappable copy taker lady said uh, to me sort of halfway through it, is there much more of this? Which suggested to me that she was not so excited as I was about the, the historic developments that uh, I'd been very privileged to watch. And do you think, was there a palpable atmosphere of euphoria in, in Berlin? Or were people in a curious way just feeling their way forward, not knowing where the revolution was taking them? Of course, it depended which circles you were talking about. I, mean, I remember discussing it with Angela Merkel a few years later, and in a very Angela Merkel fashion, she, you know, she I think she saw the momentousness of it. She wasn't in Berlin uh, that night either, and she went to the sauna to have a think about it. it was a, a, Provincial East German thing to do and probably very wise of her. But I would say, if you just asked me what I witnessed, I, it was a very odd story. People always remember things, how exciting it was, what they did. And certainly for me, as it, well, then, of course, did the cracks opened, it, 
East Germans had gone to the wall, largely as a result of it being on the American networks. And one shouldn't forget that the, the German television coverage was incredibly sleepy. I mean, the East German coverage obviously didn't want to make much out of it at all and simply said, this is a process and you go to a post office and you apply uh, for, a, I think you can call it a passport, a permission to travel. West German television, I think there was generally a sense of let's wait and see what this really means. And they were probably also thinking, what does this mean in terms of how we should cover this and being on the cautious side? So I think it was really the arrival of many American TV crews, as John says, overexcitable at, at times as Western reporting may be. Just sometimes you do have to see the moment for what it is. And I think that really then did lead to a lot more people going down to the walls. So I called a friend. I said, look, I found all my copy. I've actually gone home to have something to eat, you know, which seems rather odd. <laughs> well, nothing's happening. I might as well go home and have a bite to eat, watch the news. And then I said, look, I think we should go back down there. You know, something's bound to be going on. And of course, uh, many hundreds of thousands of people had the same idea. And the next thing we found ourselves wandering with people in pyjamas into West Berlin. And um, I do remember we had vodka in glasses that people handed out in the Bonhomer Strasse, which had been divided, of course, uh, with chunks of the first chunks of the Berlin Wall were being knocked out. And someone had this great idea of putting them in the glass like ice cubes, right? The amount of asbestos I think we were exposed to uh, after a couple of vodkas with bits of the wall, I would not like to think about. So I do know that my bit of the Berlin Wall, I did take out myself. Fine. But what about your audience? What about the people you were writing for? I mean, John, you had a, a copy taker who was getting a bit bored with the story. But what about the audience? How quickly did your news desks realise this is the moment of truth? Clear the front page. Oh, absolutely, immediately. Totally, absolutely, immediately. I mean, just going back a tiny bit, um, for me, prior to the war coming down, the moment, most momentous moments for me were being at the Gethsemane Church in Prenzlauer Berg um, a few weeks earlier. Uh, there was so much focus on Leipzig, as I mentioned before. But this was really the first time in Berlin we were, it was a particular Sunday night, and we were surrounded by Fopos, the Volkspolizei, the East German police, with, dark, with dogs and huge great spotlights shining on us. And people tend to forget. Everybody thinks, oh, yeah, it was inevitable that it was all going to be peaceful. It was all part of the classic pattern of history, 1989, domino effect, everything fell. But Egon Krenz, who was the head of the Stasi and was briefly... Um, Honecker's successor had praised the Tiananmen Square massacres, and it was always possible. And I still think it is one of the great remarkable moments about Germany. It was not an accident, and also Gorbachev as well, it was not an accident that this was going to happen so peacefully. But it was an accident that it happened. And, you know, I would be the first to admit that a week, two weeks, even a day or two before the wall came down, I would not have predicted it. You certainly felt that things were happening. You certainly felt that the hardest line of the SED, the Communist Party, was going to be blunted. Changes were going to take place. But you thought more it was going to go down the Gorbachev reform model of the Soviet Union that you, Quentin, were following at the time. And Anne and I went on to, to follow later to, um, in Moscow in, a, um, in, in that next sort of phase of, of those momentous events. But that's just a roundabout way of saying that we all like to wrap history up very neatly. 
And it just felt far more chaotic than that. As it was messy. How quickly did it move from wir sind das Volk, we are the people, to wir sind ein Volk, we are one people, i.e. unification is suddenly on the agenda. And was that really remarkably quick? It was very quick. It was very quick indeed. You had two parallel processes, really. Uh, in some ways, they point forward to things that we might come and uh, talk more about it in politics in, in Germany and beyond t- today. You had a kind of parallel world of the round tables, the endless round tables, in which very clever people in the dissident movement, but also uh, of different views. You have the Angela Merkels, who again becomes centre right, the centre left, there was a very strong sort of proto SPD ish kind of movement. And then there were the more or radical sorts who really had got things going with uh, with their green views, their peace prayers, their sort of anti, basically the kind of pacifist movement. They're sitting around a table, uh, and at the same time, really, I think things are moving. Particularly if you went outside uh, Berlin, it's very easy to get dragged into these things because of the endless German love of dialogue, trialogue, and manialogue. Uh, and at the same time, you find that things are simply moving elsewhere in people's minds. And I, I was um, kind of hard to be too fond of the old communists, but one or two, you know, I got on rather well with and you know, ended up writing uh, book, books featuring them, including Gunter Schabowski, who'd uh, announced the fall of the wall. I think he saw pretty clearly, he was a very pragmatic man, um, and he saw pretty clearly that this was not going to go the way of the nice muddly, can we be in between two systems, which Gorbachev was talking about, and neither capitalism nor socialism. People had kind of had enough of the kind of experimental mindset on, on ideology. And I was down in Modro, uh, sorry, I was down in Dresden, I should say, with Hans Modro, who John will remember, who was also rather, was thought of as this guy who could have been the, the big reform leader, had it ever really been possible for the Communist Party, which it wasn't. And uh, he was giving a speech, a perfectly reasonable speech, and he he. He said, you can come and you know be backstage. And we were looking out to this sea of uh, flags and they were a lot of the das folk and uh, you know things are getting better for us. And some demands, of course, for the Stasi to go. It was, the mood turned very sharply against the Stasi, as John will remember, as the most repressive force uh, in people's lives. And then suddenly this uh, um, cry went up, Deutschland einig Vaterland, Germany won Fatherland. Which I hadn't heard before other than at the periphery, and that tended to be at the slightly rather nastier end of, of the slightly nationalist uh, sort of movement. But it wasn't like that. It was a decent number of people in the crowd and the old communist view as well. This is provocateurs from the West, <laughs> as in the 1953 model of thinking about everything. But Modro just looked at me and he did this. I always remember that. He just, Cole was speaking. The implication was a bit, well, this is now Cole's here. This is going to happen, isn't it? And that was true. Once Helmut Cole was able to travel in the East and saw that, I think even in Cole's mind, it was still, as we know, a, a thought. It was not a direction, but it was not a given fact. Well, was but Modra, I think, was very realistic. He literally put up his hands. And if there's one moment when you suddenly think, I may be thinking about a story one way, I have to start thinking about it another way. We're still sitting there covering 10-point plans. Cole was never going to have a 10-point plan for unification. It's on or it's off. It's as soon as possible, and that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, Cole, well, Cole originally thought that this was going to take, or at least he said he thought it was going to take 10 years. If you look retrospectively uh, at history, the idea that all of this happened in 11 months and happened, in my view, as efficiently and notwithstanding an excess of maybe arrogance and exuberance by the Toyhunt, the privatization agency, 
which was merely reflecting the sort of very ultra free market views that prevail or were prevailing all across the world and particularly the Anglo-Saxon world at the time and, and were, were experimented on in Russia as well um, a couple of years later. Notwithstanding all of that, it was a remarkable 11 months. And the fact that it did happen so quickly and yet so unchaotically is another testament. But I want to look at the one person who made it absolutely clear from a very early stage that she didn't like the idea of German unification at all. To whom might you be referring, Quentin? <laughs> Clearly to Margaret Thatcher. She went round doing everything she could to try and stop or slow down the process and failed. But that, I find, the most striking thing initially about the British reaction, popular reaction in Britain, was actually very positive, wasn't it? But Margaret Thatcher was very negative. Did that make your lives difficult in reporting it? No, it made it really interesting, actually. I think it was the most interesting thing was covering the, the two plus four uh, talks, obviously the two Germanys, as there had been, and the allies, the four allies, were much more interesting than, than if they'd all nodded along. It was, of course, very rapid. And as, as, as John says, it, it was, you look back and think it was kind of amazing that it, it really did pass uh, muster in terms of how long it had taken this system, which had been embedded since the end of the Second World War into the security architecture of Europe. Which is, I mean, I, I'm slightly perversely, just for fun, putting up with <laughs> you know, a bit of a defense of not the Thatcher position, because I thought this was crazy. And, and I think most people probably on the ground welcomed the idea. The only the people who really agreed with it tended to be those <laughs> On the far left who wanted to keep East Germany alive for other reasons. And I, I, so I never thought she would prevail. But I thought her stance was quite interesting. She was clearly also, Thatcher gets a lot of blame for it, but of course she was played by Mitterrand, who also uh, played a very double game. Goodness, fancy that. And said, uh, you know, basically, if you look into the coal archive, which is amazing and, and very, very comprehensive on this, one of the most enjoyable research projects I ever did, I got myself completely steeped in the minutiae of their passive aggressive uh, communiques and side notes and scribbles is that uh, Mitron was saying to her, no, you've got to stand up for this. You get on well with Gorbachev. We can stop this. Slow it down. Stop it. We'll just make it not now. Um, and I think Mrs. Thatcher was uh, was wrong. And I think she was slightly suckered into a bit of, of vanity around that. I, I only mentioned that because last year when we were all in Berlin uh, talking about it, uh, an anniversary, there was a view that the French had never stood in the way of the French ambassador, which I thought I remember rather differently. Anyway, as it turned out, I think uh, Helmut Kohl did a brilliant shuttle diplomacy and uh, Gorbachev was on his knees domestically. A lot of money changed hands to shore up Gorbachev um, very brilliantly uh, by Horst Telchik uh, as, as Kohl's chief advisor. And I think diplomatically, the Brits were just out of the game. There was one last attempt, I think, in Moscow on a dramatic night to, to try to stop it at a summit. By, by that point, Gorbachev had crossed the line and accepted it, and Margaret Thatcher was left on the sidelines. I think in the in the big picture, rightly, yes, people have, have generally you know did welcome it. They loved the story when John and I came home. We got we were quite popular for a while, weren't we? Telling our tales of being there. But I would say, if you you know if you're the Margaret Thatcher generation, remember you you know you still have a post-war generation of voters, many of whom were very sceptical about the reunification of Germany. So I think probably if you went a bit deeper into public attitudes, there was more ambiguity. Um, but Margaret Thatcher simply, uh, I think the idea of a big and powerful Germany 
troubled her and I think she got too stuck on it. Do you think, John, do, do you think Anne's right on that? That actually, although Margaret Thatcher got it wrong in terms of the sweep of history, she was reflecting something quite deep in Britain that felt German unification was very uncomfortable. Well, as the Germans would say, ja, aber. I mean, it's, um, you know, she was reflecting something and we'll obviously uh, dis- discuss, you know, the classic British approaches to Germany, the, the old cliched ones and hopefully the more enlightened ones. To her credit, she did say in her memoirs that her approach to German unification was her single biggest foreign policy failure, which I thought was quite big of her. Um, and good of her. The Americans, who she obviously was cleaving, you know, as British foreign policy always cleaves to, they had no truck with her position, both the position, but also the tone of her position, getting out old German maps and saying, you know, they'll be heading in this direction if you give them half a chance and and all this, and, and uh, you know, this, this sort of approach. And don't forget, I mean, she was already... On her, well, she, you know, the, her, the, her demise was sudden and dramatic, and um, is one of the great sort of moments of British uh, domestic politics. Where were you um, the evening when Margaret Thatcher um, had the knife um, stuck into her in 1990? But she was already uh, on the ropes, and she was already feeling embattled. And if you throw all that into the mix, you get that picture of her. But just one quick fast forward anecdote, which is uh, during the John Major era. So it would have been about five or six, uh, about five years after that, John Gummer, who was uh, Environment Secretary at the time, took his German counterpart, a certain A. Merkel, um, uh, invited her to his home in Suffolk, and uh, with his wife and her husband. And um, he took her off to the local pub, uh, at which point um, all these um, locals, just unsolicited, just started giving her an absolute earful about sort of Nazis and Germany's, you know, marching, you know, over the Rhine and, you know, your classic 40 Towers times 100 approach after a couple of pints and she and Gummer just was embarrassed beyond anything and apologized to her profusely and she did say well now I understand the problems that you guys face. And do you think that uh, the British today understand Germany better because of the way the country has evolved since unification? Are the British more in tune with Germany today or less because of Brexit? Well, you added a suppressed premise at the end there. I spotted that one. I think that the, the relationship is more nuanced. It's more knowledgeable. A lot of time has passed. I'm not saying that um, you, know, you would not find a still antipathy towards Germany, but I think you'd find it in different places and for different, slightly different reasons. Now, you will often always find, you know, the sort of people whose views got landlocked a bit by the Second World War. But I think that, to be honest, I think it's an EDA fix to mix the languages a bit too much in the minds of sometimes of the German uh, political establishment, too. And it is sort of played up to a bit by a, a conversation which says there are these sort of backward Brits and then there are these sort of progressive, forward looking 
think like me, Brits. Uh, and that, that, that troubles me a lot, actually. I, I think that if you look at views of Germany, we remember the very successful World Cup in Berlin. I think that was a great example of German diplomacy, soft power, sporting soft power, being on the front foot about relationships, which is come and see you know, our most city, Berlin, you can see capital city, but also it's kind of one of the, the bits that you do want to show to the outside world. It's very welcoming to outsiders, very cosmopolitan nowadays. And that I think probably did an awful lot for Germany's image. And I don't simply mean in the elites, because it doesn't really matter if only elites have got a positive view of Germany. I mean, what you need is if you were as interested as John and I are in our different ways, and sometimes with different views in this relationship of so-called awkward cousins, I love the Victorian phrase. I think it's in Ian Foster somewhere. Uh, awkward cousins. We, you know, we are close, but there will be awkwardnesses. And we are too. Uh, Germany is the bigger country. It is now, in a sense, in, in within Europe, the much more powerful country. But, it, you know, there is sometimes a bit of a zero-sum game thinking that if, if Britain is on the up, Germany has to be on the down and vice versa. That troubles me quite a lot. So I think the the relationship is more nuanced than it was. I don't think when you, we will probably spend a bit longer on Brexit. So I, I, I'll pass back over to, to to John. I think my view on that is not because Brexit. It's because a particular process which began in 1990 and did give Germany uh, a huge amount of economic power and the economic model of the EU, which in many ways has been shaped by Germany and in some ways has been shaped to Germany's advantage and others have suffered as a result. Yes, those things cause new and different resentments. They don't have to be the death knell of a good relationship. But I sometimes think the inability to kind of roll with that has locked people into their pro and con views in both countries. And I think our next challenge is to get beyond it. We won't entirely get over it, but we can get beyond it. I was thinking back to the 1990s and how unification did change Germany. It meant that Germany no longer could afford to sign as many big checks to keep the European Union afloat. It was actually a poorer country and not so dominant. I've always been struck how in European debates until the Eurozone crisis, Germany did not punch its weight in Europe. Its weight was huge but he never really exploited it. And I'm not sure that the Brits ever really got that. Do you think I'm right, John? Well, we always want the Germans to pull their weight, and yet we don't want them to throw their weight around. Um, we want them to do the right thing, but just the right amount, uh, no more and no less. I mean, I, remember, I write in the introduction of my book about an exhibition in Bonn, uh, one of the great curiosities of Bonn, is that it started becoming quite a, an attractive cultural city after it stopped being the capital. Because um, again, in that great sort of moment of unplanned history, there was that whole museum mile in, in, in Bonn. Um, and it's now, I think, I mean, I, I spent two years there and I was bored witless um, living there. I, I found it really, I'm mean, just a big town, a big town boy. And, you know, I find small towns really problematic. But no, but they had this brilliant exhibition called Very British. And uh, it was one of their biggest selling special exhibitions, which they had to adapt um, because of Brexit. And it was both, it showed the best and uh, and it also uh, touched on some of the points that Anne made, the sort of the cliched views as well. It's all sort of John Steed and the Avengers and the Royal Family and David Beckham and Jeff Hurst's goal in 1966 that never quite crossed the line and all those sorts of things. But I absolutely 
insist, it's always been my view that the Germans and the Brits are the two most closely aligned socially, emotionally, psychologically countries in the European Union. Um, and that was, the Germans have, to use that awful phrase, moved on from us leaving the EU. They moved on very quickly because they just said, you did it, the deed is done, it's not going to come back, we're going to get over it, and they have got over it. But it has weakened uh, Germany in the EU. Uh, and in my view, it is, well, you know, my views about about the disaster that is Brexit. But it is something particular about the Anglo-German relationship. As Anne says, it's more nuanced. It's also more multi-layered. And in my view, notwithstanding the sort of Faragists and some of those on certain types of the tabloids, it's actually a hell of a lot closer and more affectionate than people realize. What about Berlin? For my children, Berlin is without any question now the best city in Europe, the one they really want to, to visit and indeed to live in. Absolutely. Well, I'm currently speaking to you from Berlin. I'm, I'm mixing my time between London, um, not, not a million miles away from where you are, Anne, and, um, and Berlin. Uh, and I love both cities. Um, and Berlin is absolutely, it's funny, Germans think, oh, it's become so sort of bourgeois and boring and mainstream. It's got a long way to go before that happens, um, both in a good sense and in a less good sense. It is, it is still very special and it is still a, a city that is much less global, much less homogenous, in my view, um, than so many other uh, capitals, comparative capitals around the world. And yes, it's, 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 I know it was, it was in, straight after the wall in the 90s and into the noughties. It was the clubbing centre. Everybody would go for long weekends and it was hyper cool. And the mayor at the time called it poor but sexy and all of that. It's probably becoming a little bit middle-aged, but it's also sexy, I would say, even now. And to you, Anne, are you a lover of Berlin? I'm going to put in a plea for some of the other cities. Uh, I love Berlin. Like, like John, I have my roots there. I find I, I always try to go somewhere else in Germany and end up in Berlin. <laughs> and so uh, trying to, I'm also there next week, of course, for the election and for some coverage and events and presenting. And I you know, said so to my sister, you know what, I'm going to go to Hamburg. I'm going to start in Hamburg. She said, no, you don't want to go to Hamburg. Come to Berlin. Um, but actually, I do like going to other cities. I think there's an imbalance creeping into the German system. And it's interesting, uh, many of us have said over the years, um, Britain is very centralised, of course, so is France. But uh, there is there is a danger, I think, uh, of the Übergewicht of Berlin. And I think it is felt, and you see it very much in this election campaign. I'm going back to the Rhineland. I spent a year in Dusseldorf. And uh, of course, um, Maschert uh, is uh, from the, the, the Rhineland. Uh, Hamburg, where Olaf Scholz was mayor, I think needs to be back on the agenda much more. And I love being in Munich. So not just Berlin for me. Uh, I like a mix. I think, I fear, we're going to have to wind up our discussion. But I want to put one last point to you both, uh, which has been put to the participants in all these episodes of the podcast so far. Um, to each of you, what are your wishes now for the future bilateral relations between Germany and the UK? John, you go first. In political terms, Britain cannot succeed in its attempts to separate out the bilateral relationship from the European relationship. Germany is essentially a European state and its heart is in Europe. And if Britain wants 
to improve its bilateral uh, relations with Germany, with France and others after the schisms and the drama queening that has followed the schisms of Brexit, then it needs to understand that and find a new accommodation with Europe, which it's ostentatiously refusing to do at the moment. And on a, a sort of societal, social level, I suppose it's an extension of that. There is precious little teaching German in British schools at the moment. Let me turn to Anne. Anne, what about you? What do you want to see most in that Anglo-German relationship? Well, I think we need a new start. And I think the fact that Angela Merkel will be passing from the stage, at least as Chancellor, is a chance for a new start for, for all of her many strengths. I think we got locked into a bit of a cycle of you crazy Brits, now you've gone and done it, told you so. Um, and it, sometimes that can get a very reactive response in the UK. And it probably makes Boris Johnson and anyone who is involved in the leave uh, cause, whether we uh, like it or, or, or not, did, did reflect the views of a large number of people in the country. And I think there is this pragmatism that needs to come in on both sides. I think actually sorting out the trade relationships and more of that kind of that not will actually help us some of the way. I think changing a bit of the cast of characters. And I do notice when I speak to, to those, including those around and in the race, who are not trapped and didn't go through as John sort of puts the use of the word drama queen, the psychodrama of Brexit and the way it impacted the relationship. I think they will need to define their own terms. And I think they will see success as being able not just to move on, but to find some new forms uh, of coming together again. I do believe that the relationship in its underlying forms, I agree with John, is strong. There is an attraction there. And simply having a sort of überheblichkeit, a sort of arrogance on one side that says, what fools you be in the UK and in the UK saying, well, we don't care anyway, because we never liked you much. This, I think, needs to pass it. And we need a generation of politicians to lead this argument. Cultural figures, yes, all the rest of us. But politicians who are prepared to put some skin in the game for that relationship. And I very much hope they do. Well, thank you both very much for a wonderful and wide-ranging discussion. John and Dan, uh, you've had a wonderful time being there to see the wall come down. And the relationship gets more interesting with every passing year. Thank you very much.